Well, good afternoon. And hello, Todd. And hello, Lisa, who are in the Zendo with me. If we can see Lisa from your point. And it's a privilege to be able to sit with them here. Olivia, welcome. Uh, Ellen, Monica, Lisa Kay, so nice that you're here. Kim, thank you for watching over us from out on the internet. That's really great. So I'm going to give a talk about koans today. And what I hope that this talk will convey is a description of a journey that I've been on. It's very exciting to me and, and pleasing to me. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a way that I've found so that koans like move and like three pounds of flax and so other famous koans as part of the koan literature um, no longer seem like a slamming door to me, but instead sound like what I've heard Hakomi therapy described as, as being a kind of guided self-exploration. Self I'm going to start and spend most of my time talking about my resistance to koans and then how those have resolved. And again, I hope that my example is some way helpful in um, that. I would say that the first thing that occurs to me in this transition is that my life circumstances have changed. Uh, I was a magazine editor for 10 years, a freelance writer for 10 years before that, and then a fundraiser for 25 years after being a magazine editor. Uh, all jobs in which um, criticism and uh, evaluation were ever-present. And um, I, I got good feedback and, 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 and you know, difficult feedback, and of course, obsessively focused on the negative feedback. Uh, but that changed. I'm, I'm retired now. And I really feel different. I really feel like it's like I was carrying around a tent or, a, or a, I was living in a sweat lodge or something. And now that's, that's lifted something. And part of, part of it before, when I thought about koans, I always thought, well, everybody's telling me I'm wrong all the time anyway. Why would I want to go do studying something where that will get reinforced? Again, that seems to have changed. Uh, and uh, so I feel a new willingness to, to step outside my, my habitual box. I've also been lucky to encounter several really helpful books uh, in recent months. Uh, Gu's Passing Through the Gateless Barrier, uh, and particularly Barry Madge's Nothing is Hidden, The Psychology of Zen Koans. Um, and uh, as you probably know, Barry Magic was a student of Jekyll Beck's. Uh, he has, and he's a psychoanalyst practicing in New York. He's a very fluid um, writer uh, who has many trenchant points to raise. Uh, he's also, in this book, surprisingly open about difficult aspects of his relationship with, with Joko and uh, values what he learned from her but also share some things that he found difficult in his relationship with um, But as I say, I, 
what I think is a possibility is that, that koans, which I've resisted so much, can be a mode of guided self-discovery. Peg and Flint, I mentioned this to them. Uh, I mentioned it to Todd, who's some, done some koan work, and their reaction has been kind of a very polite, measured kind of job. They've been able to explore this before. But like I say, my circumstances have been such that this was difficult. I've always been, from the very first time I encountered it, really attracted to the teaching that's called the Discourse to the Commonwealth. The Buddha's meeting, sometime early in his teaching career, he already had a, a well-established retinue of followers who were going from place to place with him. Um, but um, I want to read uh, a section from this discourse and talk about what it has meant to me. Um, so the Buddha goes to visit uh, a place called Kesaputa, and there's a group of people called the Kalamas. I, I don't know if they're a tribe or a clan or what. Uh, the Kalamas of Kesaputa said to the Blessed One, Lord, there are some Brahmins and contemplatives who come to Kesaputa. They expound and glorify their own doctrines, but as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. And then other Romans and contemplatives come to Kesaputa. They expound and glorify their own doctrines, but as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. They leave us absolutely uncertain and in doubt. Which of these venerable Brahmins and contemplatives are speaking the truth? Which ones are lying? The Buddha replies, of course you are certain, Kalamas. Of course you are in doubt. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So in this case, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and to suffering, then you know they are wrong and you should abandon them. He gives the same argument uh, about proceeding from logic and through experiential tests to um, affirming what should be what should be adopted. Uh, he says, now Kalamas, one who is a disciple of the noble ones, thus devoid of greed, devoid of ill will, undiluted, alert, and resolute, who keeps pervading the four directions with an awareness and imbued with goodwill or loving kindness. Thus he keeps pervading all above, below, and all around, everywhere and in every respect, the all-encompassing cosmos, with an awareness imbued with goodwill, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. And then he uses the same wording, changing uh, goodwill to compassion, and changing compassion to sympathetic joy, changing sympathetic joy to um, 
forbearance. I always forget the word that's supposed to come there. Um, equanimity, sorry. So he says, if someone embodies, if you can see that someone is embodying uh, those qualities, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity, then you can uh, take that into account in evaluating their, their activities, or their teachings. And then you can apply their teachings to your own, to your own life and see, do they result in you adopting attitudes of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. If so, those are true teachings. If not, they're not true. So I, I love that. And I love that as, as Sharon Salzberg has written that that uh, when you as she says for herself, when she says that I take refuge in Buddha, she's taking refuge in the Buddha who is speaking at this time to the columns. A person who says, not only Am I, as a human being, able to make these judgments for myself based on my experience and based on what I know will be wholesome? But um, everybody, he, he has a, the, the Buddha has that expectation for all of us. And that, that, that seems like a joyous thing. So, now there is a danger in this. We know that we are not one person. We contain, as Walt Whitman said, multitudes. And we have a shadow side, many different voices, and we have uh, the capacity to be selfish and to delude, to delude ourselves about our selfishness and to make up excuses, and to make up justifications. So I got a quote here from the wonderful writer Tani Saro Riku, who cautions, this teaching is not carte blanche to follow one's sense of right and wrong. It actually says something much more rigorous than that. One's preferences are not to be followed simply because they seem logical or resonate with one's feelings. Instead, any view must be tested by the results it yields and put into practice, and they must be, um, and to guard against bias or uh, limitations of one's own understanding, they should further be checked against the experience of people who are wise. Uh, and you know, this introduces a value question here, but as the Buddha said, the, the, the wise person is one who shows evidence of the Brahman hearts. So here I am back to my resistance. Uh, I still feel a lot of resistance to koans. Here's some reasons why. One, they are a body of literature describing interactions like, uh, mostly involving Chinese teachers and students. Um, they typically have a structure in the way they're presented, where there's a frame, a case that is a story that gets related, a commentary, a verse, and a commentary on the verse. And the language is also is, is often opaque, and um, there are big differences in the cultural, in the culture from which they arose. For one thing, the, the people participating seem to be all uh, monastics, living in monasteries, 
uh, dedicated to a life of, of Buddhist practice. Uh, they may live up by themselves out on a mountainside, or they may be in a big monastery. Uh, that's a that's a kind of a thriving farming business. Um, there are, but I think, are probably unbridgeable gaps in the language in which these stories were first enacted and then told. Uh, I'm just looking, you know, I've been today had the opportunity to be looking at the calligraphy on the walls, Japanese calligraphy based on Chinese characters, which themselves are beautiful visual representations of reality that come down to us in these kind of monosyllabic chunks of, of little atoms that, that cannot possibly convey the, um, the play and punning and the, and the uh, enjoyment that goes into these, these brushed on words. Um, and with that, then there's differences in cultural expectations. I mentioned that these, that these are about people who lived in a society in which monks, you know, it was just a, it was just a thing for people to go off, leave their homes, become a monk, and live that way. And that's pretty rare in our in our society these days. Certainly, in in my social circle, uh, they are also polemical stories. So the the stories of Chan Buddhism. Um, are polemical in the sense that they are making a point about uh, the role of Chan Buddhism. Uh, they assert over and over again, Chan is the way, Zen is the way, it's the only way, it's the only legitimate way. And in doing so, they obscure or erase the fact that they happened in a social milieu where there were other claimants to legitimacy. So, they are, they are polemical in that sense. Um, and the, as I said before, the, the interactions tend to be very enigmatic. So here's one example, cited by uh, Mary Magic. Liu arrives at Kueishan's place and Kueishan says, Old cow, you've come. Liu says, there's a big feast on at Mount Taishan tomorrow. Are you going? Kueishan lays down. With that, Liu leaves. So, a lot of a lot of questions there. Uh, Guo Gu, the commentator who who uh, wrote the book uh, "Passing Through the Gateless Barrier: Koan Practice for Real Life," says that koans are not uh, intentionally confusing, uh, and they're they're not um, intended to be baffling. Uh, However, that it's a case that you don't solve them, but use them to dissolve self-referentiality. This is something I love. That's, that's where I'm moving toward right now. Also, and this is a big one for me, the, the interactions that, are, that happen, like this, this one between Liu and uh, Kreshan. What's the point? I can't, you know, it's opaque to me. And even if I could understand it, would it lead me to loving kindness and compassion? I don't know. It seems pretty dry. See, it seems like it's uh, like they're having a debate about a philosophical point 
that involves enacting certain physical things to prove that words are not up to conveying what they're trying to, to say. Something like that. Again, that just doesn't seem that engaging to me. Um, compare that to the teaching story from the Buddha's early career. I, I cited this last Sunday in the talk I gave about Kesavatani, a woman who lived in idea where the Buddha was at that time. Again, apparently it was early in his career. He was in resident at this time. Her name is Gotami and his name was Gotama. So maybe they were somehow related. Um, she has a child and her child dies, gets sick and dies. And she is stricken with grief. She carries her child around the town and asks for help. And the, the townspeople, unable to offer any help, suggest that she go and talk to the Buddha. She goes to see the Buddha and says, can you bring my child back to life, please? He says, I can do it. If you can bring me a mustard seed in my house where no one has suffered grief, where no one has lost someone that they love. She goes all over town. She asks at door after door after door. In each case, People want to help her, but they, but they they say, but my uncle died last year. My wife has died. My son has died. All these, everyone has the same story. So Kisa Gotami returns to the Buddha and says, I couldn't bring you a mustard seed. But she comes with a, with a change of heart and a change deep within her that she, know, she now knows that she is connected with everyone else through this terrible experience and through the, the grief that she has over her loss. And the story is that she then goes on to become a follower of the Buddha and one of the leaders in the Sangha. Another problem I have. Very often, the stories in the koans, to me, and this is, this is, when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about what amounts to a self-portrait. This is totally my projection. But it seems to me that one is being seduced into accepting and affirming a certain type of relationship between the person who shows up with the question and the, and the master who is going to evaluate whether that question can even be accepted, much less answered, much less whether that answer can be regarded as awakening. Um, and that there's, you know, that there's a big power imbalance in it. And that's always what And worse than that, in a lot of the stories, the unknown person, or stooge, as I sometimes, sometimes think of them in evaluating these stories, gets treated very brusquely and, and brushed off and, and treated abruptly. And that's when I was, at, at the beginning, when I was saying a lot that I, I react to koan study as if it is a slamming door. That's what I'm talking about. So, um, 
Let me take another digression here. In preparing for this, uh, I've been reading a lot of stuff, and, and I also happen to be listening to a book, uh, a recorded book when I go out for walks, by a doctor at Harvard Medical School named Judson Brewer, who's a well-known meditation teacher as well, longtime practitioner in the Theravada tradition, who's now becoming rich through his apps, uh, 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 cell phone apps and so on, about, that are about alleviating anxiety and uh, overcoming addictions in various ways, and, and using mindfulness meditation as the key element to healing parts of ourselves and thus being able to address all these addictive things that we do, where we take refuge in maladaptive behavior. Um, he points out that there's a, there's a part of the brain that together, or it's many different parts that act together, and they're called the nucleus accumbens. Uh, and that this, that this assembly of things that reward us with different types of chemicals and that give us chemicals which enable us to act, um, are the, the structure is conserved all the way up from sea slugs through mammal uh, chordates and mammals up to human beings. And uh, that, that it is this uh, structure which enables uh, all the evolved forms of life to be able to move toward food, towards sexual reproduction, to avoid danger, to avoid poison, you know, and just to keep things together, right? Very, very powerful uh, evolutionary conservation, as they say. Um, and in humans, he points out, this is also the structure that has, that has come to serve as the seat of our need and our gratification from being connected with one another. So, it is, so that the, there is literally no space in the brain between being connected with one another and survival uh, in, in, in terms of those structures. He gives a wonderful example. Uh, he was, it, it comes from a radio show he was listening to called This American Life, which you may have heard, in which a group of uh, middle school students and, and uh, middle school students were interviewed by Ira Glass, and they were talking about being on Instagram, posting on posting photographs on Instagram, and then monitoring uh, the likes that they get for their posts, and how important it was to them, and how they recognized in remarkably uh, uh, precise ways how they were obsessively driven to check those likes. How they it was just. They just said, it's, it's the most important thing to me in the world is to know that other people are watching out for me, recognizing me, and accepting me. Uh, and and this, this affirmation of being seen and accepted is something that when Joseph Brewer tested people uh, uh, on various thought patterns, and then had them in MRI machines where their where their brain patterns would be uh, 
tested or, or observed that those that the the nucleus that come into the very strong, and in some cases more strongly than in uh, stimulus from uh, from food or or other pleasant. So the last point I want to make is about that interaction that the that the interactions seem to be dismissive, and that the that that seems really hurtful to me. I just I really sympathize, you know, with people who are gonna who are being put down and who are being brushed off and sent away and that sort of thing. I've talked in the past about uh, one of those. Same teachers who was Dong Shan's teacher, Yunyang. And this was done to him for decades, apparently, by his older brother and his teachers. They just they would brush him off. And that, and that, there's something about those stories that really gets me. Um, so, I, and part of it, and, and then finally, I'm finally getting to the end of my list of resistance here. Finally, I've never understood how I can bring myself to meeting koans, since it seems like that door is closed from the start. Like whatever your rational thoughts, not good enough. Your automatic reactions, uh -uh, forget that. You're just not allowed to bring any of that stuff with you. Luckily, I have found this book by Mary Magid, in which he says, actually, that's not true. Those, those are actually acceptable tools that can be useful in the proceeding. So, um, here's a, one other story that I want to tell. Right, this is actually from Passing Through the Gateless Barrier, it's, uh, case number 18. Dong Shan's three pounds of flax. And I quoted from this last summer. One time, when a monk asked Dong Shan, what is Buddha? Dong Shan responded, three pounds of flax. Uh, Wu Men, or Wu Man, comments, old man Dong Shan had learned a bit of oyster charm. As soon as he opens his shell, he shows his liver and guts. Nevertheless, Tell me where or how do you see Dong Shan? And then the verse, the abrupt utterance of three pounds of flax. These words are close to the truth, but the intention is even closer. Those who talk about yes or no, affirm or deny, are just yes and no people. So who wants to be just a yes and no person in that story? I don't know. It doesn't sound very appealing. The, um, What, what Guru Gu says, our discriminating mind is characterized by yes and no, affirmation and denial, such as, I like this, I don't like that, this is good, that is bad, and by thoughts like, I understand now, everything is good in nature, enlightenment is everywhere. All of these are products of the discriminating mind. So how do you see the liver and guts, the heart, a chan, in this answer? You would have to meditate on what is Buddha, three pounds of flax. Why? Why is Buddha three pounds of flax? This is the wacho, a critical phrase of this gone on. 
arouse an earnest desire to resolve this. Embrace the not knowing. This is the way to see the liver and guts of Dongshan. I have not found that, that guidance very helpful. But there's something else which transformed it for me. I read a comment by a, a, a now deceased Buddhist scholar named John McCrae, who uh, taught at Indiana University. And he wrote a book called Seeing Through Zen, in which he really, really emphasized the polemical nature of Zen and the Chan stories, that the, all the lineage stories within Chan and, and Japanese Zen as well. And he really emphasized the, um, the, the things that were left out in the telling of the stories and the big gaps that were in And one of the things that he says about this particular uh, koan is that there that there is a social context in which it occurred. And that social context was that monasteries could not exist without support of powerful patrons. And we know how difficult it is to keep any organization afloat that, that is not a money-making business, right? Nonprofits need to raise money all the time. Gave me a career. Um, and um, he says that what Dongshan is, is actually referring to is the fact that each new monk, when they came, became a, when they came to a monastery, came as a stream of income from the monastery, from the state. And that, uh, it, 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 metaphorically, he's saying that three pounds of flax that will go into the clothing for a new monk uh, are a, a metaphor for that state support. So after reading this, my first thought was, well, does this debunk the story? Does it somehow devalue the story of what Don Shan is saying to the young monk who has asked, what is Buddha? I don't think so. I, I, it, it just hit me that, it, no. And that really the, the first turn for me is that Dongshan is treating this young monk as a peer. Not, he's, not, he's not brushing him off. He is treating him as a peer. And he's saying, you and I both know because we are aware of the system, which will be left out in the later versions of the story, but we are aware of the state support that's keeping this place going. And yeah, I'm a major figure in this, in this monastery, and you're just new here. But we both know this. And, and maybe, that's, maybe that's not something that we're happy about. Maybe it's something that we have to grapple with day after day, that we are under the thumb of the state, essentially. And if the, if the local lord or the king or whoever it is that's supporting this place decides that he wants a different religious focus, or he, likes, or he wants to start his own different monastery with a, with a head monk that's uh, more amenable to his, uh, to hiring his nephew uh, as abbot, uh, something like that, that, you know, that we're, we have a kind of threat behind the support and that we are living with that and that that is a koan for our lives. 
So that's a, to me, that's a transformational shift in perspective. That it is possible through gaining a little bit more understanding of perspective, or a little bit more understanding of background in the stories, to uh, see them as much more sympathetic, see them as much more relational, and relational in uh, uh, terms of relationships that are not totally bound up with maintaining uh, authority and roles, but the real actual sharing. So again, I told Peg and Flint about this discovery and, and I talked to Todd about it. And their reaction is like, yeah, you're just finding that, you're just finding that out, Joel? It's just the way it is in my life. It's uh, I am just finding this out. It's true. But I, I hope that this is in a way, a kind of a, uh, an invitation or just an example uh, that it's never too late. <laughs> uh, maybe you have to wait until, you know, some big life changes makes it uh, possible, but there are ways into these teachings which uh, help reveal their, the, the depths of their resources. So I hope that's helpful. And it is now, 105. So the next thing is to have the group activity. And I want to read from another book, a wonderful other book that I recently found out about. Um, find the, it's, it's called Householder Commons. And I'll, I'll send out a link to it later. But it's by uh, uh, two women who are members of the Vermont Zen uh, Sangha in Redlow, Vermont. And they write about modern American life sort of situations in ways that are timeless. Uh, this one begins with some bad words, so I apologize for that. So it's called The Shit Abides. You're always like this. This is the verse. You're always like this. You never do that. Always, never, always, never. Ah, lovebirds. The speaker of that is someone named Clemens. Clemens, drowning in love and rancor, wonders, how can I enjoy a relationship with my loved one when we're both caught in a cage full of shit? Though the, through the cage's windows and, no, I'm sorry, although the cage's windows and doors are wide open, the excrement never seems to leave the room. Reflection. A friend of mine, another Zen teacher, cleans his desk and leaves it neat and immaculate at the end of each day. My desk has piles of books, notebooks, and papers day and night. Each week, I move some piles around, dust around them, and move them back. Aren't relationships more like my desk than like my friends? In fact, aren't they a lot like bird cages? There is song all day long, maybe, accompanied by bird excrement. At the end of the day, we remove the dirty paper bottom, stained by husks of seed and bird waste. We place the paper, cover the cage so that the bird will sleep, and the next day, song and shit start all over again. This goes on even in the most mature and happiest of marriages. Zen teaches that we are all empty of 
permanent autonomous self, that the essence of who we are is relational, co-arising with everything else in the world. It's not that nothing exists. We certainly have personality traits and a distinctive approach to life. But those characteristics are fluid and dynamic, not to be pinpointed and nailed down. They are our song, the base and treble of our lives, endlessly creating new melodies. Sometimes they are, they are harmonious, and sometimes they are atonal, even dissonant. In the latter case, we often say they sound terrible. Isn't that the way we listen to the songs of the people around us, family members, friends, and especially the persons we love? In our mind, we freeze their ever-changing song into a kind of a movie theme, the same melody with only a few variations, and we call that movie theme him or her. We create stories, impressions, and thumbnail descriptions of them that feel permanent and clear, cutting them down to a graspable song. I can only inquire who I am at this moment. Who is it? Who is that I now living with a man or woman whom I love? A person, an energy, a moment? And who is that him or her whom I love but at whom I'm very angry right now? Anytime you think you know who that person is, you're already wrong because the moment has changed. Circumstances are different. So you, she, and he are different. No one is a fixed quantity, so your opinion can't be fixed either. Life is alive and dynamic. Clinging to a fixed opinion about someone, you're always complaining, you never do what you say you'll do, is like taking a person's free, sprawling energy and trying to cage it up with your opinions. When you do that, don't you cage yourself up too? Don't you cage up your relationship? The comment at the end, what do you do with the trash in your relationship? Opening up the doors and windows helps, but what are you doing with your opinions? So among the cascade of mistakes I have made today, uh, a big one is that I didn't start by saying, I'd like you to listen to this story and then just think about your reactions. You don't have to come up with any answers. You don't have to say, Opening up the windows and doors helps, but what are you doing with your opinions? You don't have to respond to that directly. But I'm just curious if you would be willing to share anything about what, uh, your, what resistance arose within you on hearing this, this uh, modern-day koan, or what seemed to make sense to you. So take a couple minutes. And, and raise your hand if you want to if you want to say anything.
Thank you. Monica, can um, Kim, can you unmute Monica? Was Lisa's hands up first? Lisa? Oh, Lisa, I'm sorry. Oh, this, oh, Lisa. Okay, thank you very much. And then I'll go. That's I, great. I'm sorry, I couldn't see it on the screen. That's, yeah, it's light. Oh, that's fine. I would rather you go first, Monica. Oh, no problem. Um, so when you said sort of your reactions at the end, um, I mean, I still was feeling some amusement about the koan for several, several reasons. And um, well, first of all, when you apologized for the language, I'm always fine with the language. It actually helps me understand things better. I don't know what's, um, but also uh, in particular, you know, talking about the image of the birdcage and um, I'm thinking of, for me, uh, a marriage and in a cage and then there's the shit in there or the daily everything and strife and whatever. And the, the doors and windows could open and let it out, but but the, I think you said something like the shit still stays there. And it just, um, to me, that was a humorous way of thinking about just ups and downs of either each day or periods in a relationship. Um, and then just the, uh, just thinking about being, if you're in the present moment, yes, you, it can be clean if you just stay in that present moment and deal with what is right then at that moment. Um, but it also um, often involves the work of taking the paper out and cleaning up the mess. Anyway, I found it pretty delightful as a koan and I have some resistance to koans also, so thank you. Thank you, Martha. Lisa Kruitz. Okay. So I'd like to confirm that last line was that your opinions are trash or something like that? Is that true or is that just what I heard? So the, the last part was what do you do with the trash in your relationship? Opening up the doors and windows helps, but what are you doing with your opinion? Well, I compressed it. <laughs> I, I compressed it into, well, you know, I don't always know what I'm going to say when I start, but it's like, oh, what am I doing with my opinions? Because the words that I selected out were trash and opinions. <laughs> and, um, you know, what? My self-reflection on that is, well, it's that tricky thing of, you know, we can't really abandon all of our preferences. I actually started listening to nothing uh, is hidden as our, as our intensive started. So, I mean, that's working really well. So um, he's saying, well, we can't really, it's just delusion to think we can get rid of all our preferences. So if we can't get rid of our preferences, some of what's left is opinion. I mean, when you don't have preferences, to some extent, I guess my question uh, that's left is, oh, is opinion what is left? 
And getting back to this birdcage, um, which is full, just not, not just of, of bird shit, but it's little feathers and debris. I had a canary uh, when I was a child. They're messy, right? They're messy. So to me, it's like, oh, the colon actually starts unfolding by talking about it. So we've got trash opinions. We've got bird shit. But then we've got feathers and maybe mites. And then maybe if it were a canary, sometimes it's singing and sometimes it's sick. I even had a canary die. So the trash, um, the trash must be thrown out. I don't know if we need to throw all of our opinions out. I don't like myself when I'm opinionated. So that's what goes along with it. Um, is that I was left thinking about, oh, well, sometimes something I wish to change about myself is I have a very strong opinion about something. I have a strong opinion about something I'm thinking about right now. So that's my meandering answer. A lot to work with. Um, I'm going to jump in. I came up, I'll call you in just a second. I want to say that I, I chose to read this one because I have an older brother uh, whom I regard with a very fixed opinion. I, I'm, I think that he never does certain things and he always does certain things. And, and, and it's going to take a lot for me to let go of that opinion and to even though I've done a lot of work on this in the past and I, and I have, and I've been able to see how this is a trap for me, that, uh, that it's not about, I mean, it's about him, sure, but it's, but it's mostly a trap for me, that it's a block for me to be able to express any kind of connection. And, um, I'm very interested in getting past that, but I, but I have a, Again, a lot of resistance that comes up and a lot of fear that comes up when I uh, contemplate that. And, and it takes the form of those, of those phrases that were used at the beginning of the call. Always do this, never do that. Uh, even though I know that that's not true. Uh, Kim? Yeah, well, what I enjoyed so much about your talk was that you were looking at your opinion and, and you know, what we see in, in the translation we use of the Sinching Ming was it was about not being attached to your preferences as opposed to not having them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important distinction because as human beings, we, we have them, but we drown in them mm -hmm. often. And um, so your willingness to look at your opinion about koans opened that up for you. And um, that, I guess that's all that I wanted to say, that, that that's, that seems to be the where we need to go is to recognize we do have opinions and that that's what they are. And then I think that also helps us 
connect with others who have opposite opinions that realizing that they're not uh that it's the stuckness in the opinions that's the problem not the opinion itself their unwillingness like when you talk about your brother the unwillingness to to see this more like fact than opinion because we don't know that seems to be uh what, what was it that it was so nice what flint said yesterday in, in a in practice discussion here we go uh the three steps of don't not knowing bearing witness and then compassionate action and i really like that uh you know starting with the not knowing and then also we talked about in the group about how uh you don't forget the first two of not knowing and bearing witness as you're doing the compassion but you keep going around and around and i thought that was a good a good deal you know and with the koans too like your explanation of the flaxseed one you know that's an opening for it but if you if if then you discard the koan you've you've lost something you know what i mean you, it's not like you're finished with it by figuring this out that well that's that's the weight of a monk's robe or something i mean once it's a kind of a trap too getting that little bit of information that gives you the solution I, certainly that is that's something that's pointed to in the literature and all the commentaries on koans often that it's a trap to think that you've solved it and that that I, I got something in my notes and I think it's from Guogu that you know koans are not things to solve but things that dissolve self-referentiality right? I mean how do you how do you like it when someone says I get you or I understand you you know it's kind of like they have power over you you know no one really even we don't understand ourselves mm -hmm. you kind of kill it or if you understand a work of art it's you know have you killed it or is it you keep it from allowing to flower in right. a sense right well certainly that's that seems to be the the point of the comments made by the authors of the of the house senator koan to the extent that you are saying, oh, I get you, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you are this tune only, and that's all you'll ever be, and you'll never do anything else. But that's, um, that's a mistake, given the fluid nature of our existence and our, and our constantly changing perceptions as well. That there's, you know, that the, the, the seduction is that it's self-protective. And that's what I, that's what I know about my what I'm describing as a difficulty with my brother is that it is based in fear, you know, based in fear and based in desire to protect myself. Uh, and uh, I'm finally getting to the point where that is shrinking enough so that the desire for connection can get a little bit of a lead, you know, for once. Um, and um, I think your point is right that you know that that um, it is the, the mistake is clinging, not having opinions, not having expectations or preferences. It's just insisting that life conform to what those are instead of 
Qu'est-ce qu'un V C'est ça? Um, I'm kind of feeding back into your idea of the nucleus accumbens and the pleasure that we derive from a medium of connection with another mind. So let me let, let me hang on just one second. So, so can you hear what Lisa Judge is saying? Lisa, why don't you come over here by the by the uh, this is actually the microphone right here. Oh. <laughs> Feeding back into the idea of the nucleus accumbens that you mentioned and the pleasure that is created from, I think, a meeting of minds or a sense of connection right. with someone else. And that, and, and I, I don't understand this concept, so I may not be getting it right. The idea of codependent arising, which is kind of a co-creation in a relationship when we meet someone else. And I'm I'm kind of riffing off a, a session I had with a client this week where she brought me up short to the fact that I wasn't meeting her where she was. It it was my agenda as a therapist that I think was intruding in being able to stay with an experience she was having. And so I had to get rid of my self-referentiality in order to kind of co-create or codependently arise with her. And um yeah, uh, I've had I've had people tell me that that pleasure of meeting is worth more than a million dollars to them. Yeah. I appreciate what you said about the nucleus of combines because I've been one that was the part of doing Anyway, it's not easy to do that, but our opinions get in the way of our being able to meet There's one one thing I would say that that uh, just this is just an observation of something that came to my mind in listening to the reader's description of the relationship and the birdcage and the situation in the excrement and uh, I should have thought of this before I started opening my mouth. <laughs> I had a thought there. It was more an observation of a particular state of mind or perspective about the relationship that seemed to color the whole metaphorical description. I seemed like he was having a bad day. It wasn't going very well, mm -hmm. right? And that um, while he was trying to discursively, you know, conceptually rationalize what was happening, it seemed to all be coming from a place of not liking, you know, upset. Mm -hmm. So, just putting that out there. Yeah. Yeah. The very same person at the beginning of the relationship might not have called that excrement the gold that was coming out. Yeah. Something, yeah, exactly. 